Don't you love an extra $100 in your pocket? Have a TurboTax expert file your taxes for you by March 31st to get $100 back instantly. Because no matter what moves you made last year, TurboTax makes them count. That means getting $100 back and 100% accurate taxes only from Intuit TurboTax. Must file by 331. Credit only applicable to federal filing fees with TurboTax full service. Offer can be modified or terminated at any time. Blog Talk Radio. This is the May 24th, 2017 edition of Don't Let It Go Unheard. And this is where we discuss news, politics, and culture from the perspective of Ayn Rand's philosophy. Ayn Rand's philosophy of objectivism uniquely upholds the right to the pursuit of your own happiness. I'm your host, Amy Peekoff. After a long hiatus, a few weeks, I am back. Still got work to do, but I couldn't stay away any longer. Couldn't manage to do that. I'm a slight bit tired today. I had quite just kind of, I guess, an emotional experience. You know how if you have been a perpetual student or just if you remember your times as a student, at the end of the semester, after you were done with all your final exams, you just kind of had this letdown of emotions that you had to kind of process and everything from the whole semester, go, go, go. So yesterday I had this medical test, which just doesn't sound like a final exam, but in a way it sort of was because it was a follow-up on those of you who knew about my show and have been listening to the show for a long time, you know about this, but I had this kidney surgery in November of 2015. So it's been 18 months since this surgery. And I've talked about it before. I don't want to bore you, but at the hospital, they gave me a whole bunch of drugs and it was a really traumatic experience for me because they overdosed me on these opioid uh, IV opioids and uh, those interfere with your breathing. So it was, it was very scary. And in addition, there were other things going on in my life at the time that made it even scarier and, and horrible. And so this is just a really bad experience. And so what you want is if you have this surgery and it was a really bad experience, at least it was successful. And yesterday I got a follow-up test that showed that my kidney the one that they tried to save is still doing stuff and it's not blocked in any way so that the surgery that removed the blockage was a success. So I was really nice, but then I think I just spent a lot of time processing the emotions. And I was having dreams about stuff that was going on during that time. It was pretty traumatic dreams and stuff. So I'm a little tired today just from that. I uh, got sleep, but anyway, so bear with me, but I think I have a valuable show for you. If you go over to the blog at don'tletitgo.com, you'll see that the title, I'm being a little indulgent here, coming back, being indulgent, 
Hold Back the Rain, a Duran Duran song from 1982. And what we're going to do is we're going to weave in some current events and riff off of some of the lyrics. So you do want to go probably to the blog at don'tletitgo.com and check out the verses that I will be riffing on. If we end up not having enough to talk about at the end, I might have some sort of a call-in contest and you can try to interpret a verse that I did not include because it's just kind of incomprehensible and I don't see what sort of news stories we could weave into it. Maybe you can. So if you are really ambitious and you want to go look at the rest of the lyrics for Hold Back the Ring, you can do that. But if you go over to the blog, check out the program notes, you can see that I've laid it out in such a way that I have an intention here. You can also see that I've done this once before. I did that show called None of the Above after the Pope gave his Easter address. I gave it kind of in reaction to that. Hold Back the Rain, if you want to be indulgent and check it out, you can listen to that over there. And then we've got the first verse and and some news stories that I'm going to tie into that. Welcome to people. There's just just several of you over here in the chat room. Thank you for being here. If I if I come back, it's nice to have you listening here live, although I understand that if I go away for three weeks, I can't expect everybody just to drop when I return. So, you know, drop, drop in and uh, drop everything else that they're doing in, in your lives. I do appreciate you listening either live or on the podcast. If you want to call in today, the number is 760-888-5817. Again, that's 760 760-888-5817. Seven callers welcome not just if I've got the little contest going on later in the show depending so let's go over to the lyrics I'm going to read you just the first stanza and Simon Labonte is a little bit odd but I think we can get something out of this that we can tie into some news stories and, and have some fun with the whole back the rain is the theme in general that I want to focus on this idea of, of holding back the rain and not letting the fire go out and there's some material from Atlas Shrugged that came to my attention as I was doing some work on this script recently. And so I'm going to focus your attention on that later in the show. But some of the earlier stuff, we're going to actually face some of the horrible news that's out there and, and tie it into these lyrics. So first stanza, yes, we're miles away from nowhere and the wind doesn't have a name. So call it what you want to call it still blows down the lane. And not surprisingly, I'm going to tie Islam into these lyrics because of this controversy about people trying to describe Islam as something other than what it is, to create new names for it, or new names for an ideology that's motivating terrorists that is something other than Islam because they don't want to face the fact that Islam might actually be the thing that's motivating these terrorists. And I'm sorry to say that our president, Donald Trump, who is supposed to be this person who's going to save us from all the Muslim terrorists, he is getting in on this. And what I've got for you is a link in the program notes to his speech that he gave. And it's it's at the Arab Islamic American Summit, part of the purpose of this is that they're trying to create some new anti-extremism center, the new global center for combating extremist ideology. And it's apparently 
at the opening ceremony for this stupid center that they did the little orb ceremony where you see King Solomon and some other flunky and, and Trump putting their hands on this orb. And there have been some hysterical uh, caption contests going on out there and people just kind of doing their own captions and stuff. And just a couple of minutes before the show, a friend of mine had posted one that was really funny, which is good. Brought my energy up, made me laugh a bit. Um, but yeah, so they opened this center for combating extremist ideology. Mind you, they're in Saudi Arabia. Saudi Arabia is the home of Wahhabism, which is a primary version of Islam that motivates terrorism. Uh, we all know about the redacted pages from the 9-11 report that show the link between Saudi Arabia and the people who attacked us on 9-11, et cetera, et cetera. But let's evade all that. Let's be Donald Trump and go over to Saudi Arabia and let's make a deal with them. Because at the moment, the ones that we are really upset about are Iran, you know, the ones over in Iran and maybe ISIS. And we think that for the moment we can create an alliance with the Saudis and have them fight against Iran and fight against ISIS. In any event, some people, you know, everybody kind of excerpts this speech and takes what they want from it. Some people are taking certain excerpts from it and cheering. But listen to what Donald Trump wants to say about the conflict between Islam and Western civilization. And this is something that was excerpted by the New York Times. They actually quoted him as he delivered it, the way he delivered it was ungrammatical. The way that it was in the prepared remarks, which I've linked to in the program notes, you can see is actually grammatical. He says, this is, or well, he says, his writer says, and he tried to deliver, but didn't deliver grammatically, which makes you wonder whether he even understands it. He says, this is not a battle between different faiths, different sects, or different civilizations. This is a battle between barbaric criminals who seek to obliterate human life and decent people of all religions who seek to protect it, end quote. Now, that's perfectly grammatical. But he's just trying to say that these people are just barbaric criminals, that all they do is they seek to obliterate human life and that there's no particular ideology motivating them. It is true that decent people of all religions seek to protect human life and, and people who call themselves Muslims seek to protect human life. That doesn't change the nature of the ideology that is Islam, and it doesn't change the nature of the evil perpetrated by those people who adhere to that ideology, right? And that's really what I'm riffing on when I'm looking at this particular stanza or verse from hold back the rain, call it what you want to call it. It still blows down the lane. You can try to pretend that Islam is not the ideology that's motivating these terrorists as much as you want for whatever reason, but it is. And we'll talk about reasons that people might want to do that in uh, a couple minutes here. As you know, there was a horrible attack in Manchester, England, a concert, which is, it was given by a young pop star who I hadn't even heard of. Is it Ariana Grande? Is that her name? Um, you know, 
all these teenage girls and stuff, parents bringing their girls to their first concert. And, and there was an eight-year-old girl who was killed and 22 killed, 50-some-odd at least injured. We don't know how badly, or at least I don't know how badly. I haven't looked into all of the, the details, but I'm sure a lot of really horrible casualties. They're now saying that, yes, uh, Salman Abidi, if that's how you pronounce the, I, I want to use an expletive, the guy's name, um, he's linked to other people. I think his father and brother have been arrested as having been linked to ISIS, et cetera. They have a raised critical threat level in Britain, which means that maybe they expect other attacks from people in the same cell. Now, of course, you know, they, they think that young girls at a concert are suitable targets for this as, as well. So this, this is all going on. In the meantime, as we saw, what is Trump doing? He's going over and courting the Saudis, making deals with them. I believe that I read in the speech it was $110 billion worth of weapons that we're going to be selling the Saudis, which means arming our enemies. You know, maybe at the moment you can evade and try to say that these people aren't our enemies, but they are our enemies. And, you know, this is what he's doing. He's going over to Israel and, of course, he's changing his tune about Israel. Uh, He's going to try to press them into some sort of quote-unquote deal with the quote-unquote Palestinians, as they like to call themselves. And, you know, what is that deal going to be? Nobody knows, but there's going to be a deal. Why? Because it's Donald Trump and he makes deals. And that's what he thinks is important to do. What you can notice is that he has reneged on his 30-day promise to, you know, he promised to eliminate ISIS or have in place a plan to eliminate ISIS within 30 days. And all talk of that is out the window. It's all of this dog and pony show, horse and pony show, I don't know, over in Europe, you know, and of course he isn't in Israel for the 50th anniversary of Jerusalem. He's gone by then. He's visiting the Pope. You know, he's he's over there making a big show of things. And what is he doing? He's making another plan to arm our enemies, to basically get everybody excited about this plan to defeat Iran or defeat ISIS. How? By arming the Saudis, because then they're going to be the next one. And it it, it brings up something that I'm going to go ahead and uh, raise as a, as a theme in a minute here. But just to let you know that the Saudis are not people that we want to be making any sorts of deals with. We don't want to be selling weapons to them. Why? Because they have no respect whatever for the value of human life. Glad to see New York Times is on board with this theme. Opinion page published today. Headline, why Saudi women are literally living the handmaid's tale. It says, on April 10th, I'm excerpting just a paragraph. On April 10th, the authorities at the Manila Airport which were the stopover for a woman named Dina Ali Laslum. She's a 24-year-old Saudi Arabian. It was her stopover between Kuwait, where she had escaped a forced marriage, and Australia, where she'd plan on adopting for asylum. So here she is in the Philippines. What did the authorities do? They confiscated her passport and her boarding pass to Sydney, 
They held her at an airport hotel until her uncles arrived. When her uncles arrived, they beat her and forcibly repatriated her. This is what goes on to women in Saudi Arabia. In addition, got thanks to Rob Aviera, a link to this story from Washington Post. Commerce Secretary praises the lack of protest in a country where it's punishable by death. Commerce Secretary Wilbur Ross offered two highlights from his trip to Saudi Arabia in an interview with CNBC on Monday morning. First, he enjoyed the two bushel of dates he was given by the Saudi Arabian security guards. And second, he was pleased that he saw no protester with a quote-unquote bad placard. And Washington Post offers, well, that's perhaps because an American-style protest is illegal in that country and can result in a death sentence. So in Saudi Arabia, good luck escaping a forced marriage if you are a woman. You will be beaten and forcibly repatriated by your family with the total consent and participation of the authorities. And no, you know, American style protest, no freedom of expression. But, you know, certainly be happy for the two bushel of dates that you're going to be served while you are there. Just Gene in the chat room says, arming the Saudis and getting them a good deal on those arms. Yes, he's promising them a very good deal as well. And what it, you know, what is it that Donald Trump is doing when he's making sure that the Saudis get these good deals? You know, he's he's kind of strong arming and coercing some of the businesses here who are supposedly going to make those good deals. So these are not our allies in any way, shape, or form. You might say, okay, well, maybe at this current moment, we wouldn't necessarily go at go you know go to war with Saudi Arabia but certainly we don't need to arm them we don't need to have our president using whatever influence he cares to you know bring to bear to get them good deals on arms so we don't need to arm them we don't need to get them good deals on arms maybe we shouldn't be selling them any arms at all given the history it's not been all that long ago since 9/11 happened and and again you know what 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 I wonder, what I really wonder, because I I do, I still have Trump supporters. I I got unfriended by a Trump supporter the other day because I actually participated in the caption contest for the little glowing orb ceremony. My contribution to that, you can see out there on social media. I've got it, Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, you pick your poison. But my contribution was that King Solomon and his flunky were asking our president to place his hands on this special hand measuring device. Because you remember Donald Trump made this big deal about the size of his hands during his campaign. So he he deserves to be ridiculed in that way, right? Yeah, go ahead and put your hands on the the special hand measuring device. And actually, if you look, if you look at the picture, his hands do not look very big compared to King Solomon. I forget about the flunky, but, you know, King Solomon is like behind Trump. So with perspective and all that you would expect that Trump's hands might look a little bigger in relation to anyway go look feel free to ridicule our president and you know people are saying why are you ridiculing him Uh, first of all I'm not happy at all about this arms deal Uh, second of all 
making stupid comments during a campaign about the size of your hands and what that might imply is just dumb and it's worthy of ridicule. And then, of course, we have this hardy tradition here in the country. I'm so sorry that Wilbur Ross doesn't like to see it here, but we have this hardy tradition in our country of ridiculing our leaders when it's appropriate or even when it's inappropriate. We have a right to do this and to preserve the right to do this. I think particularly under Donald Trump, it's important to continue that tradition. So, you know, I'm not usually one to do this, but I couldn't resist. Twitter was having this caption contest and I thought of it immediately. Trump asked for it. So, so why not? Um, But yeah, I, I participated in the little caption contest here there and, and had a good time with it. But I, you know, what, what is Trump doing? I, what I want to know, right. Oh yeah. And this is why it's, what, what was, what was I saying? Sorry. I'm a little bit tired. So my point of saying that is that after I posted that I got unfriended by one of my Trump supporting Facebook friends. I think that's why I got unfriended. Who knows? I could have gotten unfriended for something else, either offensive or annoying that I did, but I think it was that. Um, the question is, those of you who support Trump, who still think he's doing the right thing, how do you reconcile? I mean, I, I know that a bunch of you people who have been Trump supporters have also been very vocal about how bad the Saudis are, uh, about you know spreading the word that the 28 redacted pages of the 9-11 report showed that the Saudis were involved in all this. How do you reconcile that with Trump going over there and whitewashing the nature of the ideology and also making these sorts of deals, you know, engaging in this huge show about the anti-extremism center, you know, because extremism, it's, it's extremism. It's not any particular type of extreme ideology. It's just, you know, extreme justice, bad. Extreme love, bad. Um, extremism of all forms, you know, uh, these people, they just, they, they have evaded or they haven't read their Martin Luther King, Martin Luther King Jr. is fabulous on extremism. I suggest going back and looking at my old show. I have a show called Heroes and Dogmatists where I talk about that. This idea that you're going to just keep insulting, criticizing, fighting against quote unquote extremism and, and not realizing that you're also fighting against extreme good is horrible. Just Jean says that she read something that claiming Kushner, who's Trump's son-in-law personally contacted the Lockheed CEO to get Saudis a better deal on the arms. I mean, it's just, it's so revulsifying that here he is. Trump is supposed to be the different one, right? And he's engaging in the same sort of pattern well, you know, what is it? When somebody becomes president, they learn that they have to kowtow to the Saudis or something. I, you know, you can have a conspiracy theory about this, but pre him being inaugurated, I would not have necessarily expected this from Trump. Maybe everybody else did, but, you know, is it something that he learned or was this in his nature all along that he was going to do this, that he was going to go make this, quote, fabulous deal with the Saudis, make sure that they are on our side against Iran and ISIS because that'll be so valuable. You know, again, if we wanted to destroy ISIS by ourselves, we could. We have the complete moral right to try and destroy ISIS 
on our own. Now, maybe we need to understand what created ISIS in order to do this properly, but we don't need the Saudis to destroy ISIS. And in fact, we're having to give them this special deal on arms, supposedly so that they can help participate in quote unquote security in the Middle East. So it's ridiculous. It's a big show. Is part of it, as some people are speculating, that he's trying to evade the whole in, you know, investigation into the Russian ties and everything and make everybody forget about that? Who knows? But you know, in terms of another pattern that I fear he's going to copy from his predecessors, this whole Israel-Palestinian deal, the idea of pushing the Israelis to make a so-called deal with, again, the so-called Palestinians. I don't even like to refer to them as, as they prefer to be referred. I'll, so-called is what they'll get from me. Uh, take that for granted if I, if I slip, that I, I have never the intention of, of letting them be called Palestinians. Um, you know, what do the predecessors, what have our predecessors done? Our predecessors have tried to push the Israelis into these negotiations with these people who want to wipe them off the map and they insist as having a starting point for these negotiations, the pre-1967 borders, the borders that are untenable, the borders that Israel had to expand on, otherwise it could not survive at all. It's the pre-1967 borders that are supposed to be used as the starting point for these negotiations for the so-called two-state solution and everything. We don't know yet because, and you know, the newspapers have complained that the contours of the particular deal that Trump wants to foist on everyone have not been released. It's just a whole bunch of photo ops right now, and you know, tweet and photo ops, as far as I can tell. Just Jean in the chat room says, I wonder too if it's something presidents learn once they're in office that makes them change their tone. Craig in the chat room, chastising me a little bit says, uh, what kind of self-deception do people engage in by pretending that Trump is different? And why do they even want to do it? I think they want to do it because they want to believe that the world is in a better state than it is. Um, Like I said, I would not have necessarily predicted that he was going to go over there and make a deal with the Saudis per se. I remember hearing something about some kind of alliances, but these big showy deals of, you know, multi over a hundred billion dollars of arming the Saudis. Yeah, I I guess I'm a little bit duped. Of course, I didn't vote for him. I wouldn't vote for him. Voted for Johnson. Not that that would have been so much better, but it seemed like it would have been a little bit better if we had even a hope of of getting Johnson, but no, so we wouldn't be surprised. So there's a couple issues that kind of come out of this. And, you know, again, one of them is the issue that comes into the song lyrics, call it what you want to call it still blows down the lane. Islam by any other name is a post that I wrote a few years ago when I had gone to an event called restoration weekend that David Horowitz puts on. And there was an Islam versus Islamism panel and a debate that was going on. It was uh, Robert Spencer and Andrew C. McCarthy, both of whom I respect. Um, but they were having this debate about, you know, what do you call this ideology that's motivating the enemy? Is it Islam or is it Islamism? And in that blog post, I talk about the fact that as far as I can tell, 
there and, and you know what what is the purpose here right what is the purpose of using some term other than islam to name the ideology i talk about the twofold purpose in doing this um one major legitimate purpose is that we want to distinguish those people who want to kill us from those people who don't um right? Because there are people who call themselves Muslims that really have no desire to kill us at all. Maybe it'd be nice to at least section those people off. But then I talk about two rhetorical purposes that people have mentioned as a reason for using a term other than Islam. One of them is that we do have to communicate with other people who don't necessarily understand that Islam, if it's taken seriously, would motivate these terrorists. And then the second Andrew McCarthy during that panel and and at other times, and other people have argued this as well, that it would be good to give the, what we would call non-Muslim Muslims, Muslims who don't want to kill us, give them some quote unquote rhetorical space. And in, you know, my blog post, I talk about the two different reasons you say you might want to do it. One of them is maybe just as out of charity for them, you know, let them have their illusion of a nice life as a Muslim. And then the other idea is, well, maybe if we give them quote unquote rhetorical space, they will become our allies and fight against the Islamic extremists as people might call them. And I question whether either of those are good. You know, is, is there self-sacrifice involved in calling something other than what it is? So the preference that I come out for in the blog post, and I'm open to argument on this has been a long standing debate among people who are engaged in discussion about Islam and jihad and, uh, you know, what's the proper terminology for this. this has been going on forever. You know, um, Peter Schwartz, Yaron Brook, Bosch Boston, uh, Robert Spencer, as I said, Andrew C. McCarthy, all have been involved in this discussion of what do we refer, you know, to the enemy. I, I like, Islam as the ideology. I don't think that we gain anything by making a term called Islamism to refer to an ideology. At the same time, I'm very sympathetic with the idea that we don't think, you know, all Muslims are out to kill us. And this is going to feed into the next big point that I want to make about this whole issue of, of terrorism and Donald Trump's strategy and everything else. Um, yes. Let's go ahead and try to have a term that allows us to distinguish those self-described Muslims who want to kill us and who are actively taking steps to try to kill us, to try to kill our way of life, and those who don't. The term that I actually like is Islamist. It draws the distinction, but it doesn't necessarily convey any additional content. So, for example... There is one that was Islamic supremacism that Robert Spencer has used. And actually, if you read the Quran and, and you read other sources in, in Islam, you can see that inherent in the ideology is trying to make it supreme over other ideologies. So I think that's redundant in a certain way. It implies that there's a form of Islam that isn't supremacist, etc. So if you have Islamist, just to refer to the people who themselves are using force 
or using other sorts of rights violating measures or promoting Sharia, for example, if you use it just to refer to that group of people who are doing these horrible things, who are our enemies, and then everybody else is just plain old Muslims, I think that's okay. I just would not refer to the ideology as anything other than Islam. So I wouldn't use Islamic totalitarianism. You could use jihad, right, as as maybe the doctrine within, right? Um, so I use jihadists, but Islamist, I think, is, is a decent term as well. My whole point there, though, is, you know, Donald Trump can try to say that this is not a battle between civilizations as much as he wants. His flunky who goes over there with him, commerce secretary, whatever, can pretend that everything is peachy keen, fine and dandy over in Saudi Arabia. But thankfully, we've got the New York Times helping make it impossible to evade the fact that Saudi Arabia is in some respects, a subhuman culture. Uh, They do do not treat people as human beings, not fully, not by a long shot. So, yeah, I think, Craig, you're right. I was deceiving myself in a certain way by thinking that Trump might actually be different. So what's the other point that I wanted to make? Um, You know, here's Trump going over there thinking that he's going to solve the problem of jihad, of those Muslims who want to kill us, many of whom are in Iran, and of course Iran's trying to get nuclear weapons, right? So the problems of a nuclear Iran, the problem of ISIS, the problem of terrorism in the name of jihad, Trump thinks he can solve this by forming alliances with the Saudis by pushing the Israelis into a deal with the so-called Palestinians and everything else. He thinks he's going to go over there and make all these deals and everything's good. And you're supposed to get excited, get behind him. You're supposed to forget the whole thing about the 28 pages in the 9-11 report implicating the Saudis to forget about all that stuff, right? Just be excited Here's your leader, your your you know, your great leader, Donald Trump. He's over there, he's saying stuff that if you take it out of context sounds really strong. Just go with it, right? Be happy. Our enemies of the moment are just ISIS and Iran. Just take them totally out of context. Now, for me, I was just focusing on the Saudis themselves and the, the how horrible and reprehensible it is to make deals with the Saudi Arabian regime. Uh, But I have a friend who's been pointing out also that the issue of Putin and Putin's role in the Middle East in helping to foster the creation of ISIS um, is something else that Donald Trump isn't taking into account. And insofar as he doesn't take into account the full context of how ISIS is coming to power, then he's not going to be able to solve this problem that it's just a whole, again, you know, dog and pony show. It, it's ridiculous the you know, this, this thing he's going, on. he's getting everybody stirred up, getting everyone angry. And this is where I bring in this theme of, of 1984. So in 1984, everybody always hears me talk about 1984, George Orwell's dystopian futuristic novel. Everybody talks about it from the standpoint of mass government surveillance 
And it is a horrific dramatization of mass government surveillance and the effect on human life, the, you know, how dehumanizing that is, to be sure. But something else that struck me when I reread it fairly recently, I've reread it a couple times in the last few years, the thing that strikes me with it also is the way in which the totalitarian regime kept the population distracted from their suffering, kept them motivated to continue to work for the state, you know, be loyal to the state, um, you know, just basically continued to subjugate these people by means of engaging in so-called war. And if you did read 1984, here comes some spoilers. There's this constant war between so-called Eurasia and East Asia, is what they called it. And it was such a propped up phony made up word they, they got everybody stirred up and angry about all the time. It was so phony. Orwell dramatizes perfectly by showing that, and you know, again, spoiler during a huge mass rally. And I can't even remember which of the two sides they were at war at the time. It, you know, it was like the hate week, you know, and, and they're all supposed to be rallying around and angry about our enemy, whichever it one, you know, one it is at the time it's Eurasia or it's East Asia in the middle, in the middle of the rally, in the middle of one of the speeches of the, you know, dignitaries who were speaking at this big rally, right in the middle, they change who they're at war with. Okay, and they've got all these banners and everything else, and suddenly, right in the middle. So, you know, up until that one second, we were at war with Eurasia, and then suddenly they decide we're at war with East Asia. Right in the middle of the speech, whoever this dignitary is just changes the one that he's talking about as being the enemy and the one that's the ally, as if nothing has happened at all, like barely blinking an eye. And then suddenly he's talking about East Asia as the enemy instead of Eurasia or vice versa, whichever one it was. Uh, they're ripping down all the banners that had said, you know, oh, the evil East Asia or whatever it is. This is the sort of thing that. I fear is happening to us today and, and particularly with Donald Trump over there in the Middle East, basically stirring up everyone's hatred. And, you know, I, I don't want to discount the nature of this enemy. There are jihadists out there who would like to destroy Western civilization. But the thing that is becoming more apparent to me over time uh, and, you know, we knew it before, but we just didn't see to the extent to which our so-called Western leaders or Western-ish leaders are participating. Um, this ideology and the people who have been truly, sincerely motivated by the ideology, the jihadists, they're pretty impotent without the assistance of someone like a Putin or someone like an American president to arm them to enrich them, to give them the resources to actually carry out large-scale attacks. And we saw in 9-11 that, was it 19 of these hijackers or whatever, there's a whole bunch of them, 15 or something, that were from Saudi Arabia. And here's Donald Trump, the president who's supposed to be different, following the same pattern, deciding he's going to go and arm these people use the influence that he has via his son-in-law or whoever thinks Gene 
in the chat room there, um, to coerce a co- you know, American companies to offer not just deals, not just sell it, but offer, quote, good deals to these people. So is Trump following the same pattern as Putin? This is a, something that I need to do some more research on because I'm just not as educated as, as I should be. But I have a couple friends who have been talking about this for a while, which is, and, and you know, there's blogs and everything else you can find out there. There was an Atlantic article that I'm still trying to dig up that I had meant to read and I had set aside. I need, I need to find it talking about this connection between Putin and ISIS, Putin fostering Islamic terrorism. We know that he's at least not discouraged the persecution of gays, et cetera, in the, in the region there. Pure Sharia style. So Anyway, that's that's my my soapbox here. And so, yes, Islam by any other name, it's true that that there is a real enemy there. But I fear that what my friends are saying is true, which is that the leaders that we think have been strong against this enemy, Putin, some people think that Trump are actually going to be arming the enemy. Now, yeah, it may not be. The exact for you know let's let's get into the Sunni versus Shia and whichever one is our ally this week and our enemy this week. I, I fear nothing good is going to be accomplished, and in fact, it's only going to be bad for us. And again, if you are a Trump supporter, I invite you to call in and just tell me what's going through your mind. Are you not disappointed that Trump is over there in Saudi Arabia making a deal with him? The number is seven six zero eight 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 five eight one seven if you want to talk about that. Like I said, go to the blog at don'tletitgo.com and you can talk to me about other stuff in the program notes as well. But that's my little riff on that first stanza. Call it what you want to call it, still blows down the lane. Yeah, it's, Islam is what it is, but I'm fearing that it's being made more potent because of people like now Donald Trump. And, and the stuff that they do. And, and, and again, a lot of people would not have expected him to take actions that would embolden this. But, you know, again, there he is uh, giving sanction when he's sitting there at a ceremony with that stupid orb, getting his hands measured. It's a center against extremism. Not even against jihad, against extremism. And who knows, are we helping to fund that center? And is that center going to go against other sorts of extremists, people who are for extreme adherence to good ideologies, because after all, it's it's extremism, right? So next stanza, if I don't have any calls, let me check over on the... No, I don't have any calls. Okay, people do free, feel free. You can call in if you want. I think I'm doing pretty well time-wise. I've got about 45 minutes left or so. So yeah, I think we'll we'll do it. Um, So the next stanza, I'm not going to spend as much time on it. A lot of people wouldn't even really share my love for Chris Cornell or anything else, but it is going to kind of feed into the the last segment. So I'm going to go ahead and talk about it a little bit. Next verse from hold back the rain. People tell me I haven't changed at all, but I don't feel the same. And I bet you've had that feeling too. You can't laugh all the time. Now I'm tying this into depression, but it doesn't have to be depression. There are people who simply lose 
their idealistic spirit as time goes on, as the world makes them weary. And we're going to talk about some of that in a bit. But what we saw over the last week, I forget the exact day, actually, sorry, but Chris Cornell committed suicide. Chris Cornell was the lead singer of Soundgarden and also the lead singer of Temple of the Dog, which was that super group made of people from Pearl Jam and other places. And then he was also the front man for Audio Slave. The weird thing for me, actually, it was last Thursday. I know it was last Thursday that this happened. So whatever day that was, last Thursday was, was when he happened. Because I remember what I did. There's this song called Be Yourself, which I've posted in the program notes. And every so often I've posted that song. And I forget what it was that day. It was something, oh, I posted a throwback Thursday because I had a pixie haircut. And somebody comes right in and says, no. As if, you know, I look terrible in this pixie or something. And as if this person who I've never met has any say over what I do with my hair anyway, just for first comment no so I post you know be yourself this song which I post a number of times in a number of different contexts it's it, it the lyrics are not super profound but they're cool he talks about people in all different walks of life you know life that make different choices and each of them is expressing their own particular values and ideology uh Friends of mine who've listened to this song and, and who also like it, we try to take it a step further and say, okay, part of being yourself, yes, you acknowledge who you are, but you then use the acknowledgement of yourself, not as a way to rest on your laurels, but then, you know, accept who you are and then grow beyond yourself. Look at, for example, the, the recent phrase that I've been using is, you know, what is your highest opportunity for personal evolution? Stole that from Evan Pagan. Uh, what, you know, what is your highest opportunity for personal evolution and are you pursuing that? And if you do, then you're going to have hope. That's the acronym that he uses. Um, so yeah, you can tie this in. It doesn't have to be. So I posted the song just unknowing. I didn't know anything that Cornell had killed himself. I didn't know anything about it. And I have one friend on Facebook who, you know, they, Facebook allows you to react in all those different ways. Now you're sad and for Mother's Day, I guess you could be thankful, but no longer and all these different ones. So he puts sad and I'm thinking, wow, he must be interpreting this song in the just accept who you are and don't try to be any better. And, you know, you just are who you are. Why try to improve? So I write this whole thing about, you know, you don't just accept you're going to grow. And he comes back and actually between the time that he came back and, uh, you know, between then and the time he came back, I saw a friend who posted about Cornell. I was horrified. So it was just, but it's just a coincidence. I post this song every so often. I like this song. You might like this song. Uh, it's funny. I went back and I listened to a number of songs from Soundgarden, songs that I used to listen to and I thought I liked. I honestly have to say they, they don't really hold up. The, the stuff from Temple of the Dog holds up for me a lot better over time than does that. But nonetheless, Cornell had a great voice. He did some, I think, really nice work with Temple of the Dog. I like this song from Audio Slave. I don't care for a lot of the other Audio Slave, particularly. Some of it's okay, um, but I like this one. So, you know, don't take me as, oh, my gosh, I'm telling you that Chris Cornell is the artist of all time. What I am telling you, though, is that he's talented, and a lot of people saw him. And if you look at this blog post that I got from Donna Pastro, I, uh, you know, some people who actually were more into the grunge scene than I ever was. I was never really into the grunge scene as an aesthetic. I like some of the music here or there, 
but, um, and of course, you know, probably wore some clothes that look sort of grungy. You still wear some ripped jeans sometimes, but that's just because they get ripped. <laughs> Not as a stylistic choice per se. Um, in any event, people looked at Cornell as an elder statesman of the movement as somebody who was going to end up living beyond and not die in this sort of horrible way that he was going to transcend it. And the blog post that I shared again, thanks Donna for sharing it yourself talks about the fact that even if somebody is aware of this issue of say depression, wearing you down or the cares of the world or the state of the world, wearing you down, even if you're aware of it, even if you write about it, there's a song on the Temple of the Dog album that is called Times of Trouble. And he's talking about drug addiction and overdosing and the, and the toll from this, right? And how horrible it is that pers- you know, someone's life is cut off too soon and everything else. And what does he end up going and doing at the age of 52 when you think, okay, 52, maybe he's survived this. He didn't. He probably OD'd. I don't know the, all the details. Some people were saying, well, maybe he didn't OD. Maybe he was doing one of those uh, sex game horrible things that the Michael Hutchins lead singer of NXS did. Still um, not, not smart. Um, and probably, again, due to drug overdose, if you're doing something and getting killed. So he died in this in the same horrible way. But they're saying that he had lifelong drug abuse, probably self-treating depression. And he did talk about a lot of those issues in his songs. I was, you know, like I said, reviewing some of his catalog, listening to a number of them. And he does. He talks about these issues of depression and drug abuse and and everything else. And even though he was fairly smart, self-aware, seemed to be a more dignified presence within this grunge movement, he ended up going this exact same way. So, um, you know, can't laugh all the time. Now, is is it just depression that can have, you know, give you this idea that you can't laugh all the time? No, you don't have to be depressed. You can also just be weighed down to a large extent by the state of the world. And so what I've got next in the program notes are a series of news articles, as if my little foray about what Trump's doing in the Middle East and and elsewhere isn't depressing enough. I've got a whole bunch of other things just for you to contemplate about the state of the world and, and what's going on. The first one actually isn't necessarily depressing. It's just a scientific fact, which is that a scientist has figured out a way to observe where a person is in his home by, from a vantage point outside the home, picking up a Wi-Fi signal. So Wi-Fi, the convenience of Wi-Fi, at some point you may have to choose between the convenience of Wi-Fi and privacy, unless, of course, you take extraordinary measures to make sure that people outside your home can't pick up on Wi-Fi signals. There's someone on Twitter who was commenting about this and and was saying that the Wi-Fi doesn't provide enough resolution to give a really good picture of a person and what they're doing. It's like, yeah, you could see that maybe that looks like a person shaped blob of some sort, but there's not going to be a whole lot of privacy loss this way. 
it could be one of these articles. You know, there are these articles that just engage in the sensationalism about the value of a new scientific discovery or the threat posed by a new scientific discovery. This could be another example of that, but the articles seem to imply that there could be quite a bit of privacy lost by someone who was able to, from you know, outside your home, pick up stray Wi-Fi signals. And they could see that the Wi-Fi signals, for example, bounced off of your person and, you know, were ricocheted outside or whatever. How do we deal with something like this as a privacy issue? You know, when I've written about privacy, I talk about so-called informational privacy primarily. This is, you know, there is information at stake here, but it's it's the idea of observing a person from outside the home. Uh, what I've got in terms of you know, a link giving you some idea of how the law should handle this if it comes to pass. Suppose that anybody, including government agents, could be outside your home, pick up a Wi-Fi signal, pick up the stray Wi-Fi signals, and learn a whole lot about you. How should the law deal with this? And the way the law should deal with this is the same way that Justice Scalia dealt with a similar type of technology in the Supreme Court in the Supreme Court case Kilo versus United States. Uh, and essentially what Scalia said is that if by using some sort of a technological contraption the authorities were able to get information about what was going on in your home, information that normally could be obtained only with a search then what they were doing is tantamount to a search for purposes of Fourth Amendment and that the government would need a warrant. Now, that sort of holding protects you only from the government. You would have to extend that into a tort context where you have two private parties and one of them is using this sort of technology to get information about you. So suppose, I'm just going to use Katy Perry because I've got a little bit of Katy Perry on the brain. Suppose the paparazzi train one of these devices on Katy Perry's house and they can see that within her home they're doing a reenactment of the Bon Appetit video that she has uh, most controversially uh, published recently. Just go check it out if you want to. You notice I didn't share Bon Appetit on my blog, but now I've talked about it during my podcast, which is probably bad enough. But in any event, so suppose that there could be this information gathered by the paparazzi and they go ahead and they publish it. Star Magazine, People Magazine, wherever they're going to publish such things, I would say that she would have a tort claim against them for using this type of technology to gain this information about what's going on with her in her private home. Now, if she's going to go do it out on a music video, that's a whole different thing. But, the, you know, the videos, it's fairly harmless. There's There's all sorts of wonderful innuendo there, but it's the video itself is very just playful and, and fun. Um, but in any event, yeah, uh, there could be a tort claim. It would be an extension of the sort of reasoning that Scalia is using in Kilo. Uh, by the way, I'm glad to see that Cato is pointing out this value of Scalia in the realm of privacy. Scalia was bringing the focus back to the language of the Fourth Amendment when it said that it, the Fourth Amendment should protect persons, houses, papers, and effects. And he was in the process, before he died, of 
applying that language in a way that was more focused on the physical things that government does when it invades your privacy than had been true for decades, right? For decades, the whole focus had been on the so-called reasonable expectation of privacy. And then here's Scalia bringing a focus back to the physical actions that government takes, the trespasses that government commits when it conducts a search on, you know, on your person's houses, papers, and effects. I can only hope that Gorsuch is going to continue that tradition. I'm glad to see that Cato is out there talking about Scalia and, and what he's done in that realm. Um, so, yes, bad or good, not necessarily, right? Every new technology is going to sometimes come with some sort of a side effect that you have to take account of. So Wi-Fi is wonderful. Maybe there's this side effect of being able to see people on the other side of the wall, et cetera. But if there is, there's ways to handle it. We can, we can figure it out. What is sobering are some of the articles that we've got here about government invasions of privacy. Steve Richens versus via, via Twitter gave me a couple articles here. One is Apple's latest transparency report shows a spike in U.S. government data requests. Apple has been, at least as far as I know, very transparent as an ally in the battle for privacy versus an invasive government. And as part of that, what they have been doing is publishing the data about the requests that they get from the invalid requests as well from the government uh, to hand over your personal data. Apple has also taken measures Again, you have to take Apple's word for this, and, and I do. You know, I, I had people talk about conspiracy theories this morning, right, in, in relation to – I was talking about this 1984 theme, governments stirring up conflict on purpose to distract their citizens and stuff. I was talking about this this morning on, on Facebook, and one of my friends says, well, then, you know, you have to basically always believe conspiracy theories. If I'm going to believe – some sort of a theory of corruption of a government institution, a corporation, whatever, I'm going to have to see at least some evidence. I have seen from everything that I've seen of Apple, they are earnestly on the side of our privacy, that Steve Jobs' statements were all in that line. And as far as I know, Tim Cook, whatever you want to you know, complain about with him, he seems to have been continuing that posture of fighting the government. We do know that the government has their hooks into Apple in certain ways, and we also know that if the government has its hooks into you and you're a very large corporation and you'd like to continue to operate on the scale that you have, that you might find it difficult at certain times to resist complying with government requests for data and all these other things. I haven't seen any evidence that the, you know, that Apple has succumbed to the pressure. Everything that I see they continue to publish this data. They continue to fight for the ability to provide us with encrypted iPhones and all of these wonderful, awesome things. So I, you know, I, I buy this. But what is sobering, of course, is that there is still a spike in these data requests. If this continues to go on, and if we continue to see that under a Trump administration, all of this, you know, the NSA activity, all the invalid NSA activity continues, then, uh, you know, I'll ask again, Trump supporters, you thought he was so different. You thought he was so good. 
What do you say that he is continuing this as well? Oh, well, because terrorism. Okay, well, then you are the people in 1984, you know, just listening to the, the party. You're so stirred up by being against jihad, which I am too. I'm very much against jihad, as I demonstrated earlier. Nonetheless, that doesn't mean that we should condone systematic rights violations by our government, and that's what this is. Another article that Steve shared with me on Twitter, but I forgot to include here in the program notes, just go find Steve Rishens on Twitter. He, and I retweeted this one, I believe. It, there's uh, been recently an admission by the NSA of them violating their own rules time and time and time again and collecting data about Americans that even under a statute they didn't have the authority to do. You know, I've, t- I've talked about this so many times in the past, but as it stands right now, constitutional law, the, the established constitutional doctrine in the realm of privacy puts us at the mercy of legislation. It is only legislation that is protecting our data from an overreaching government. There is no warrant requirement over any of this data. And why is it? Because supposedly you've shared it with a third party. So boom, you know, no longer protected by fourth amendment. I've been fighting to try to get that doctrine eliminated, but in the meantime, we're at the mercy of statutes. So then what happens is they engage in this selective interpretation of the statutes and say, oh, well, what we're doing is perfectly legal because I can interpret the statute this way. Sometimes they pretend that they're going to be better about collecting our data and that they're, you know, they say, oh, well, we pledge to adhere to certain rules. We will be so good. And then they don't adhere to the rules. Now, whether even by statute they're required to adhere to the rules that they said they were going to adhere to is a whole different ballgame. But, you know, again, this whole realm is a mess. It's because of the third-party doctrine. They need to eliminate that doctrine. In the meantime, it's, you know, what does the statute say? Did the NSA adhere to the rules that were set out for them? Apparently the rules that are set out for them says that they are only legitimately able to collect communications to or from these foreign targets, these you know people who are subjects of investigation, and they are not supposed to be collecting information, communications that are only about these foreign targets. Because there could be communications about foreign targets. Those communications could be entirely between American citizens, those of us who, by statute, are you know enjoying a little bit more protection of, of our privacy. Uh, what does the NSA do? They say, oh, so sorry. We just don't have the means to distinguish communications that are to from versus communications that are about, which is garbage, right? If I go on my computer right now, I can search emails that are to or from a certain person. I can search emails that have something in the message body or in the subject header or whatever it is. If I can do that on my own individual personal computer, you think the government doesn't have the resources to do this? It's because they're either lying or they've chosen to archive the information in such a way that it isn't retrievable in those ways. Deliberate choice on their part. Uh, one of the articles, I think, yeah, I think it, it is the article that Rishans, I, I should have put it in the program notes. I'm sorry about that because I actually did go and look at it. In the article, it said something like, the NSA now pledges to delete most of 
the offending data. Delete most of it. Most of it. So you're supposed to be reassured because they said that they're going to delete most of the data. What does that mean? They might still be retaining the data about you. And, you know, again, you don't have any real privacy in today's world. (laughs) Why NSA is always watching you. Now, what can you do about that? You can say, well, I'm, I'm not going to use any of the wonderful technology that's available to me because the NSA is showing that at any time, if my communication is about one of their purported targets, that they can collect it and retain it and, you know, view it for their viewing pleasure, or read it for their viewing pleasure or whatever. Um, are you going to not avail yourself of all the awesome technology or are you going to continue to do it, realize that the value of the communications that you engage with everybody, it, it's downgraded, it's, it's dirtied to that extent that you know that these NSA bastards are potentially listening in. Maybe you're still going to engage in these communications and at the same time fight it. That's been my perspective. I was uh, discussing this issue with the, a friend recently and the friend's like saying, well, you have to be really careful and you may, maybe don't use any of, you know, like don't be on Facebook and stuff like this. Then you say, well, maybe be on Facebook, but maybe at the same time be an outspoken opponent. I analogize this to Ayn Rand. She paid her taxes, but she was an outspoken opponent of the income tax. We'll talk about that when we get into this this last thing here because I want to get into it. Uh, A couple more headlines, and I'm not even going to go into these stories. If you want to get depressed, go ahead and look at them. One, Rob Eviar, thanks for sending this, as depressing as it is. Drivers being arrested while they are stone cold sober stopped at one of these, you know, intoxication checkpoints or whatever and be arrested even though you show up as sober. That's horrific. And then Trump's budget proposal. Supposedly Trump's budget proposal is going to be DOA. Saw a New York Times headline that said that it is going to be DOA and that this is good news for Republicans because it would be such a bad budget because it would not help the poor as much, of course, as their line. But I would, if you really want to go into what is good or bad or ugly in the Trump proposal, if it even matters because it's going to be DOA, you can look at Ben Shapiro's take on that. In the chat room over here, Selfishness is asking, when the government breaks the law, who pays? Well, so, you know, just in the realm of privacy, this has been a big issue. And one of the things that struck me early on in in the Fourth Amendment realm was the so-called exclusionary rule, right? So government is conducting a criminal investigation, and it doesn't get a warrant like it should, so, for example, I hear O.J. Simpson is going to be out for parole soon, out on parole soon, which is a really frightening thing. He's a scary guy. I met him in person once, and, and he was pretty slimy. Um, I don't think I should, I'll tell you that story another time. But, you know, imagine it's O.J. Simpson, this horrible murderer, and the government gets some, you know, evidence against this guy but doesn't follow the proper warrant procedure. Who should pay? Should Nicole Kidman, right? Uh, Her relatives and stuff not be able to get justice because of the so-called exclusionary rule that says that if 
there is a warrant violation, that that evidence is excluded, and then maybe OJ goes free as he did at the time. Thankfully, they got him for something else later, but that that's what happens, right, under the exclusionary rule. What should happen is the government pays. It used to be under the Fourth Amendment that you could sue the government for trespass if the government invaded your property you know, invaded your privacy, interfered with your contracts, with your phone company, et cetera. If they did it without a proper warrant, then you could sue for trespass and you could get damages for that. Government should pay. <laughs> Craig says, no matter what the government does, you pay. That's another discussion for another day because, you know, could you have a legitimate government that's interesting? Appy Association for Private Enterprise Education just announced its call for papers for next April. And it's an intriguing topic, which is, could you constrain Leviathan in a reliably adequate way? Craig in the chat room is saying no. Uh, in this past semester with the Libertarian Theories of the Law Seminar, I'm more sympathetic to that sort of argument than I was before. But I still come down on the side that we could have a limited government so that the government could do some things. I guess, okay, no matter what the government does, you pay. Okay, fine, you pay. Do you pay more than that service is worth for you? And do you pay against your will? Those are really the main questions that we want to answer. And the anarchist will say, no, you know, no matter what's going to end up happening, you're always going to end up at some point paying more than a service is worth to you. And you're going to be paying against your will. Are those necessarily the case? That's the debate. How do we handle it? How do we live a life? And that's what we're going to go into now. So let me get to the, the next stanza. This is a chorus, actually. Chorus of Hold Back the Rain. And if the fires burn out, there's only fire to blame. No time for worry, because we're on the roam again. The clouds all scatter and we ride the outside lane. Not on your own, so help me please hold back the rain. Now, if the fires burn out, there's only fire to blame. Why would the fires burn out? It, because there is a lot I mean, there are a lot of bad things going on in the world. And and here's one quotation from Atlas Shrugged, my little, my work recently on part three that struck me. It, it takes an exceptional mind. I think this is from Axton. Yeah, this is Axton. And, and a still more exceptional integrity to remain untouched by the brain destroying influences of the world's doctrines, the accumulated evil of centuries to remain human since the human is the rational. And Axton is talking about a few people sitting before him who managed to remain untouched by those brain-destroying influences. But for many of us, it, it, it's a battle to remain untouched by this, to not be tugged into certain kind of battles, for example, that you shouldn't be fighting um, and then when you take on those battles, to be worn down by those battles, this is a, a, you know, a, a very tough thing. But you know, is there only fire to blame, so to speak? Do you have a choice? Should you know better about this? Some people argue yes. Craig, if you look at his comment on my blog at DontLetItGo.com, he says about this next quote that I'm going to read you in, in a moment here. He says, unfortunately, he, from his perspective, he thinks that most objectivists don't understand 
the content of this next quote. It's the content of this next quote maybe could help you remain untouched by this. Um, in the quotation, it's talking about entering Atlantis. And, you know, spoiler, spoiler, spoiler alert, there's an Atlantis that is actually existing in the novel, right? It's portrayed as actually existing in Atlas Shrugged. And so in the quotation, they're talking about entering that particular Atlantis. But we could look at this quotation as referring to Atlantis. Can you live effectively in Atlantis? Can you make your own Atlantis even in the outside world, even in the world of today? And that, that's really the, the question to ask here. How can you and can you, can you and how can you, Make your own Atlantis in the world today. Let me read you the quotation here. This is from Galt. You will not enter Atlantis until you learn that you do not need to convince or to conquer the world. When you learn it, you will see that through all the years of your struggle, nothing had barred you from Atlantis and there were no chains to hold you except the chains you were willing to wear. Through all those years, that which you most wished to win was waiting for you. Actually, I'm not 100% convinced that was Galt. It was, it was in that same scene where they're all speaking, and, and it might have been him. The next one is Galt. Um, what I should have done is put who it was. That could have still been Axton. Or it could have, no, it could have been Francisco. It's, it's one of those. I'm sorry, people. I need to go back and look at this. I'm a little tired. Um, but that right there tells you, look, you have been willing to wear certain chains. You have decided that you need to convince or conquer the world in order to live a proper life. And you don't need to. You don't need to convince or conquer the world. Now, in the novel, what they're referring to is they're referring to this idea that you don't actually even need to remain in the outside world, you don't have to conquer the world in order to live in the type of world that you have envisioned for yourself, the, the world that you envisioned for yourself as a child. You don't have to convince or conquer the world to, to do that. And in the novel, they have the option of actually withdrawing from the outside world and they have a place to go, an actual place to go as an alternative. We don't have this place to go, right? We don't have this place to go, but what can we have instead? What can we do in this world? And this is what the third quotation is getting at. But before I I do that, let me go because I wanted to pick up on someone. Someone had shared this quotation. This is um, from James Valiant, a friend of mine who had shared the quotation as well. I want to actually get over to his Facebook post on it. Let me see. I don't know if he posts so much that I'm not going to be able to find it quickly. No, I got to scroll down a bit. He may have posted too much for me to find it too quickly. Let's see here. Mm -hmm. Mm. No, I think it, okay, here it is. Yes. Okay, so they're having a discussion about this quotation again. You will not enter Atlantis until you learn that you do not need to convince or to conquer the world. And then the question is, you know, what is it exactly that he means there? Is it bad to try to convince the world in some way? And 
as I understand it with James, he says, no, it's not necessarily that it's bad to convince the world. Yeah, he says he's only talking about the chain of needing to convince or conquer others. He says it is still an important value when it happens under the right conditions, of course. So, you know, what is one of the things? I mean, one of the things, of course, is that in any context where you could say that your opinion about whatever it is that's going on is being assumed to be a certain thing when it's not and when there's no gun at your head, that you should make sure that you don't sanction the ideas that are destroying you. So in any context, you need, you should speak up and at least defend yourself. Um, you know, and another thing that, of course, is spoken about in Atlas Shrugged is not providing any fuel for the looters, those people. So, for example, we don't want to go over and make deals for Saudi Arabia. Why? Because their government has supported an ideology that is anti-human life, and in fact, they have acted to destroy American citizens and values, you know, American values that the Saudis have. They've supported this. So this idea, um, you know, the, the, the idea of, of not supporting your enemies is, is a huge one. But beyond that, can you seek to convince? Yeah, you could seek, you could seek to conquer. Do you want to seek to conquer other people? No, not necessarily. It's really about the, the issue of, of convincing. Conquering is necessary in some context. If there's an active war against you, you may actually have to fight. And in fact, we see in Atlas Shrugged, some of that is played out by one of the Valley's residents in a, in a sort of controversial way. But he, he conquers in a very effective and, and selective way. You know, but convincing. I mean, right now, Yaron Brook is traveling the world again, doing debates and lectures and everything else, spreading the word about objectivism. And there's there's a couple things there. First of all, uh, there is an audience of people who is wanting to listen to him, right? So they all come. The other day, he was. I think it was just yesterday. He was in Israel. He was in a debate, standing room only, at this debate. And I, I heard that it went very well. I need to go back and, and look for some more about it. Um, they have this Atlas Award that they're giving. And John Allison spoke to the top entrepreneur. And there was a display on their stock exchange, an electronic display, talking about this Atlas Award. So seeing the spread of the ideas out there is very exciting. And participating in the spread of the ideas is very exciting. I mean, here I am. I'm trying to, in my own little way, talk about the ideas and, and spread the ideas in a certain way. And I enjoy doing it. So to the extent that you enjoy it, you find it fulfilling, that you're not providing any sort of fuel for your enemies in doing so, and you're not pretending that you're supporting ideas other than what you are. You're just stating things the way that you see them and doing things the way that you're inspired to do them. Sure, go out and, and try to convince some people. But, for example, I don't try to convince people who don't want to be convinced. Um, you know, I, I invite people who, for example, are Trump supporters, call in and, and debate with me and everything else. But I'm not going to go out there and spend my time on Facebook, for example, hitting people over the head with my ideas. I'm going to do exactly what I find is appropriate. I'm not going to pretend that. I think things other than I don't. I'm, I'm going to speak up 
in the various contexts where I could be inferred to have certain ideas if, if I don't say something. So I'll say something, I'll speak up, but am I going to make a point of feeling like I always have to convince everybody else? I did this in college a lot. No, right? You live, you live your life. But then, so then the, the broader question then is, what do you have to do, right? What do you have to do in order, you know, to kind of throw off the chains, so to speak, in today's world? Do you have to completely leave the society? Of course, in Atlas Shrugged, as I said, they have the option of completely leaving and entering into a society with other people, all of whom agree exactly with you, none of whom hold a anti-life ideology, right? They're all holding the same pro-life ideology objectivism within this society. If you could enter that type of society, that's wonderful. We don't have this option. What do we do? Now, the, the third quotation that I have on the blog is from chapter one of part three. And uh, Galt is telling Dagny, you know, what, what had happened. He says, we were scattered all over the country, right? All the, the people. And, and the context is that everybody had decided they were not going to work in their professions. They were going to take the lowest jobs they could find. And they were going to make themselves the outcasts that the world wanted them to be. And he says, we were scattered all over the country as the outcasts we had always been. Only now we accepted our parts with conscious intention. Our sole relief were the, the rare occasions when we could see one another. We found that we liked to meet in order to be reminded that human beings still existed. End quote. And I included that quotation to emphasize the last part of the stanza of hold back the rain, you know, not on your own, right? There's this value that you obtain from other like-minded people. There's a, there's another passage from Francisco uh, when he's talking to Dagny and he's talking about the value that Dagny represented to him, her idealism about life and what it offered her and what she was going to achieve in the world and of course, it's an idealism that was shared by select human beings, other human beings besides her. But it's that idealism that convinced him that he had to join this particular battle. You know, again, all kinds of spoilers. Sorry, people. But, you know, th there is this inspiration that you get. There's a fellowship from other people. So the, you don't have to be some solipsists just live in your own world or whatever in order to adhere to an individualist ideology. It's, you know, a society with other people where if you go on in some of these passages, they talk about how achievement doesn't mean that you're being looted. You know, that if you achieve something, it means you would actually get payment for your achievements, whether spiritual payment, monetary payment, hopefully both. And that if you find these like-minded people, in their case, they'll just call them human beings. Human beings still exist out there. So what do we do? You know, what do we do in today's world? You seek the society of like-minded people, of, of human beings. And some of us are doing this, ironically, through social media, which is a place where, because of the law today, We've got very little privacy. Um, you know, we are, if we participate in social media, we are, in effect, you know, 
contributing to our government's database about things and stuff. We are perhaps giving some sort of fuel to various looters out there, right? We're, our, we're lending them our data. Nonetheless, we get a tremendous value out of it, right? How many of you, and you know, I don't know how many of you are on social media. Some people issue social media, and I, I think it's a valid choice. But I also think it's a valid choice to try to seek out like-minded people wherever they are all around the world and take solace in the fact that there are other people like yourself and perhaps even decide you want to meet these people and get to know them better and become friends with them and everything else. Um, there's, there's a value to be had. You don't necessarily have to have a particular Atlantis that everybody can go to. Some people talk about the objectivist conference, OCON, uh, once a year as kind of a mini Atlantis, a lot of objectivists will go at the same time in the same place, but you know, you can, you can meet more informally, you can meet in smaller groups, there's all kinds of things you can do. And then the question is, how do you conduct your life outside of that? How do you conduct your life outside of that? Craig in the chat room says, convincing or conquering the world ought not to be anyone's primary life goal. No. Um, why? Because then your goal is in some other person and you don't want your primary life goal to be in somebody else. Um, now, it may be that your primary life goal is learning to communicate clearly about a certain set of ideas and their application, that you take tremendous pleasure in figuring out, for example, what in the world do we call this ideology that's motivating the terrorists? It's, it's a logical question. It's a, it's a puzzle. It's a problem um, that will interest some of us, and maybe we you know, take great pleasure in figuring this out. I happen to get onto this issue of privacy. And I found it really fascinating that our courts and everybody else devised this idea of a right to privacy without any particular basis that I could tell. And I've spent my academic career looking at, at that issue. That's something that interested me as a puzzle to figure out. And then of course, as a side issue, maybe go out there and try to convince people that we could handle this better in the law than we are today. We could handle this in a way that is truly just, that treats people like human beings. Do you, you know, do you like doing this? Do you like becoming clear about the ideas yourself enough to communicate them? Uh, is, is that something you enjoy? Do you want to share these values with other people who also choose like people here? Thank you for, for listening today. Um, that's what you do. Is, is it going to be your primary goal that you feel like you must convince everybody else and that, you know, however many people you convince today is how good you feel about yourself. No, you may convince people as, as part of communicating about ideas and, and making sure to stand up for what you believe and stand up for what is right in various contexts, which is required as, as a matter of, of justice. But is it going to be your primary goal? No. And so what do you have to do? Do you have to take as, you know, as described in Atlas Shrugged, right? All, all of these, again, sorry for your spoilers here. You all should have read Atlas Shrugged. Um, the strikers, they all take the lowest job they can find. Do you have to take the lowest job you can find? Because at the same time, they're supposed to continue, and you would want to continue practicing your chosen profession. You would want to, whenever you can, continue doing the thing that it is that you love even if it's not going to be the thing that you use to support yourself 
Why? Because the outside world is, is rejecting. Do you have to take the lowest job you can find? Do I have to, for example, go flip burgers or something at McDonald's and then do my podcast with you guys? Or can I do something that requires a little more mental bandwidth so I can earn a little more money so I can have a little more free time to do what I'm doing right now, for example, right? If you take the lowest job you can find, then just to support yourself in any sort of healthy lifestyle might not leave enough free time for you to engage in your chosen profession. There's a little bit of, you know, I mean, this is part of romantic art to portray an ideal where somebody could work in the very lowliest profession and have time to do either philosophical writing or scientific research or other sorts of things that these strikers would do with their time. What do we do in today's world? You know, do we have to make a particular place in Atlantis where everyone goes? Or can we be content to connect with each other on social media as imperfect as that is, as vulnerable as it is to government intrusion? Do we have to take the lowest job we can find because we don't want to support the looters, right? We don't want to pay any more in taxes than absolutely necessary. These are questions that we can talk about in the the future. I'm actually out of time on this show. So I guess it's good that nobody called in because I got through pretty much what I wanted to do. Last thing I'll ask you to do if you are so inclined is to go watch Katy Perry's Rise. I still take things that I find inspiration from in the culture. Yes, she talks about faith. She's religious. Okay, fine. I still find the song to be inspiring and uplifting, and I hope you will too. Thanks for listening. I'll be back here next week at the usual time. That's Wednesdays, 3 p.m. Eastern time, 12 p.m. Pacific. Until then, follow me on social media over at the blog at don'tletitgo.com, and I'll talk to you next week.